Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Lone Ranger and the Mystery Ranch by Fran Stryker. Volume 5, Chapter 14 A Call on the Sheriff Breaking through the woods in flight from the lawmen, the Lone Ranger and Tonto took every precaution to hide their trail. They doubled back on their tracks, set out false leads, and avoided places where the ground would retain the prints of their horses' hooves. Whenever they came to a small spring-fed stream of water, they rode through it, following its course for quite a distance, so that even bloodhounds would have a hard time in pursuing them very far. They traveled for several hours, heading in the general direction of the Whitcomb Ranch, despite the many times they broke their course. The masked man had long since given up his original plan of following the tracks made by the boss's horse. Sheriff Cook and his men made such a course impossible. The lawman, however, had given the Lone Ranger food for thought. He reasoned that they had not just happened to come upon that clearing. They must have been sent there by someone who figured the Lone Ranger and Tonto would return. None but the members of the Night Legion knew that the masked man had been in Frisbee Shack. None others knew he had found that clearing. It was logical then to suppose the members of the Night Legion sent the sheriff there to trap him, if and when he should return to the clearing. The Lone Ranger wondered why Sheriff Cook and his men had waited until today to go to the clearing in the woods. He knew from observation of the ground and print still retained that the lawmen hadn't been there previously. Yet, unless the one who sent them there was well aware of the masked man's movements on the previous day, they would have assumed that he'd go there the day following the battle with the hooded men. He hadn't. He'd been occupied with the delivery of the sisters to their uncle's ranch. Somebody knew this, and the only ones who could have known it were the men at the ranch. All things considered, the Night Legion seemed to be in some way associated with the Whitcomb Ranch, the Hoodoo Ranch. We'll get there as soon as we safely can, the Lone Ranger told the Indian. I don't know exactly what we'll do when we arrive, but I want to have a look around and see if we can find any footprints that match those made by the boss. Tonto nodded silently. He, too, had, for the past two hours, been deep in thought. He asked the question the Lone Ranger had been considering for some time. How did the sheriff know we would go to the place of the woods? The masked man explained his deductions. They didn't just happen there, Tonto. They were sent there. Maybe the sheriff is in the Night Legion, Tonto commented. This, too, had been a passing thought of the Lone Ranger, but he had long discarded it. The sheriff and his men were a far, far different type than the murderous fiends he'd fought with hand-to-hand -hand in the clearing. He shook his head. No, Tonto, I don't think that. I do think, in fact, I'm almost sure of it, we'll find the boss either close to the Wickham Ranch or in the town of Showdown. Who knew we'd go to the clearing? I've been trying to think. You told the girls we would go there. The girls, that's right. They knew where we were planning to go. They thought we started for there when we left them last evening. Then they must have heard about us being near the house last night. If they reasoned it out at all, they'd realize that it would have been too late for us to go there last night, so we'd be likely to go there today. Sounds right. 
The girls, of course, can't possibly be involved in the Night Legion. They've just come to this part of the country. But their uncle would hear everything they had to tell. Maybe that tells us who the boss is. The Lone Ranger glanced at his companion. He knew just what Tonto thought, what the Indian implied. No, he responded. Grant Whitcomb cannot be a member of the Night Legion. Tonto looked across the narrow space and separated the two white horses. Why not? he asked. Wickham has been on his ranch for years. We can find dozens of people who will swear he hasn't left it for any length of time. The boss of the Night Legion hasn't been in this country more than a few weeks. Remember, Tonto, he started his work in Texas. We followed him from there. Tonto looked perplexed. But for this one point, many things seemed to indicate Grant Whitcomb. Stories of the weird things at the ranch, the way the Whitcomb's men remained aloof and apart from all the other cowboys, the close seclusion of the Whitcomb ranch. And yet, what the Lone Ranger said was true. Grant Whitcomb couldn't have been in Texas when the outrages of the Night Legion were prevalent there and at his ranch at the same time. Grant Whitcomb could not be the boss they sought. Tonto suddenly recalled something. Wait, he muttered. His right hand slid beneath the buckskin jacket he wore, and in a moment, after fumbling at some secret pocket, he withdrew his hand and guided his horse closer to the masked man's and said, Here, you take this. The Lone Ranger reached out, and Tonto dropped a button into his open hand. He examined it closely. It was a fancy glass button, such as some men wore on their vests. Still clinging to it were a few strands of thread, and the pattern of the button was unique. Where did you get this? He asked the Indian. I found it in the clearing, close to the footprint of the Night Legion boss. The Lone Ranger recalled seeing Tonto reach for something on the ground, but it was at that moment that the sheriff's voice had ordered them to lift their hands, and until now he had forgotten to ask what Tonto had seen. This button, the Lone Ranger said slowly, might be an even more important clue than the footprint. Of course, we aren't certain it came from the vest of the boss, but if you found it near where he stood... Tonto nodded. If we can only find the vest this came from, thought the Lone Ranger. The woods were thinner now as the two men reached the edge that bordered on a stretch of open country, which extended due east to the Wickham rangeland and southeast to the town of Showdown. Once in that open country, it would be practically impossible to keep their trail concealed. Whoa, commanded the Lone Ranger. Silver halted, and Tonto's horse, accustomed to following the masked man's, did as well. The afternoon was well advanced. Grant Wickham's house and the town of Showdown were about the same distance from the Lone Ranger and Tonto, and it would be dark before either place could be reached. For a moment, the Lone Ranger was undecided. If, he muttered, we head to the ranch, we'll not be able to do much hunting for footprints in the dark. If we go to showdown, the darkness won't interfere with what I want to do. In fact, it will help. Why do you want to go to the town? asked Tonto. Sheriff Cook will be there. The Indian looked perplexed. The entire day since leaving the clearing had been spent in avoiding Sheriff Cook and his men. 
Why, then, did the Lone Ranger suggest going to the stern-faced lawman? From here, observed the Lone Ranger, gazing through the slits in his mask at the level open country, extending as far as he could see, we can head for showdown. We plan to go to Wickham's place because we thought Sheriff Cook went to the clearing because he was sent there by someone who wants to trap us. Tato agreed. That sounds right. But, continued the masked man, Sheriff Cook was not sent there by anyone. Then our entire idea is worthless. Everything we suspect about the ranch would be wrong. There wouldn't be any reason to suspect that the boss is in close touch with affairs at the ranch. This Tonto knew was true. It had never been the Lone Ranger style to go ahead on pure guesswork. Perhaps one of the reasons for his success in tracking down other criminals and in serving justice as he'd done before was the fact that he'd made sure of each point as he went along, taking nothing on assumption and basing none of his conclusions on guesswork. Now, before he went to the Grant Wickham Ranch, he wanted to go southeast to showdown and interview the sheriff. I need to get him alone, he said, referring to Sheriff Cook. There are a couple of questions he alone can answer. He swung his horse southeast, prodded gently with his heel, and the white stallion lunged ahead, carrying the lone ranger toward the town of Showdown, with Tonto following a half-length behind. During their ride back to town after a futile two-hour search in the woods, the sheriff's deputies were in vile humor. Tex Wilson and Dave Sands had little to say, but their clouded faces showed how they felt at being outwitted by the flashing action of the Lone Ranger on his horse. Walrus did most of the talking, and his expressions were colorful, to say the least. He promised dire things the next time he met up with the masked man and was profuse in explanations, punctuated by picturesque cuss words for his failure to get at least one shot at the fugitives. Sheriff Cook's face was set in an expressionless mask. Occasionally it softened as a look of amusement twinkled in his eyes. But that was nothing more than a fleeting change to be immediately replaced by the grim sternness that indicated how he felt regarding the outrages of the Night Legion and the disappointment he felt at not having at least a few of the hooded men roped with him on his return to showdown. Shut your mouth. Sheriff Cook finally warned Walrus. But the way them two got clear, they would never have done it if I'd been myself. I was choking on some swallowed tobacco juice just at the same second them horses jumped. Otherwise, they wouldn't have catched me sleeping. I didn't want them to anyhow, growled Cook. That masked man was a lone ranger. There ain't no call to take him to the caboots thing that makes me sore is to think of spending the whole day riding out to that clearing and back again and not seeing hide nor hair of them hooded killers. If you didn't want them too, retorted Walrus with the freedom of long friendship with his superior, why in Tonkit did you have us beating down the hoods, hunting for em? Because I want to speak to him. If there's any man alive that's capable of turning up the boss of the Night Legion, that is the Lone Ranger. He swung in the saddle to eye the two deputies who rode behind him. I'd swap all three of you and three more like you to have the Lone Ranger widen with me. This didn't help to lift the state of mind of Tex and Dave. 
Little more was said during the ride back to showdown. It was well past dark when the quartet arrived. Walrus headed for the handiest cafe to relate his adventure with many additional details, figments of his vivid imagination, to his friends. Tex and Dave went off together to discuss the day's ride and talk about things in general, comparing notes on their respective backgrounds and furthering a friendship that had started only that morning. Sheriff Cook, an old campaigner who knew the value of rest when the opportunity was at hand, went to his home and turned in for the night. Something seemed to tell the sheriff that there would be strenuous times in the days ahead. With the Lone Ranger in the vicinity, hounding the members of the Night Legion, open warfare between the hooded men and law-abiding people of the community might break out at any moment. He didn't know exactly what he expected but he had a vague feeling that he'd do well to rest and sleep now while he had the chance. He didn't know how long he actually slept. He woke suddenly and sat bolt upright in his bed. For a moment he was confused, but as his brain cleared and the fog of deep sleep rolled back, he wondered what had wakened him. Something, he was sure. He listened intently in the darkness but heard no sounds except the chirp of crickets, the distant revelry of the cafes, and the dismal howl of a wolf. He judged by the sounds from the cafes that it must be close to midnight. Then a strange sound came to his highly tuned ears. It was faint, barely audible, yet he was certain the sound was made by someone creeping along the ground close to his home. Careful to make no sound, Sheriff Cook reached for the gun belt that was looped over the chair beside his bed. He drew his weapon from its holster, thinking as he did so of the other gun that had been smashed by the Lone Ranger's bullet. He heard the sound outside again. It seemed nearer to the front, as if someone was creeping along from the rear to gain the unbarred door. Holding his gun beneath the covers on his bed to muffle the metallic click, Cook drew back the hammer, and then brought the gun out again and held it steady, pointed at the doorway of his one-room house. There was a slight clawing sound against the heavy wood of the door, as if someone outside were fumbling for the latch. Moonlight streaming through the window fell in a square patch on the bed, bathing the sheriff's head and shoulders in a faint reflected light. The door started inward but the deep, stern voice of a man rang from the sheriff's side. Don't fire the gun. You might hurt someone. That voice. Sheriff Cook knew it well. He swung to his left to see the head and shoulders of a man outlined in the window. At that instant, the door opened and Tonto came into the room. Sheriff Cook, when he realized the trick that had been played, grinned directly at the man in the window who covered him. Pretty slick, he commented in approval. You had the redskin make just enough noise to keep my attention on the door while you got the drop on me through the window. But come on inside, Lone Ranger, and consider yourself more than welcome. Tonto, not entirely trusting the sheriff, despite the ring of sincerity in his voice, kept the gun leveled while the tall masked man skirted the house and came in through the door. How did you know who I was? he demanded of the sheriff. Recognize your voice as that of the man in the clearing today, and I knew who you were there when I heard what you said to your horse. 
You still suspect me for the murder of Joe Frisby? The sheriff shook his head. Nope. I came here for information, stated the Lone Ranger. I now have hopes of getting what I came for without too much trouble. I think you understand that I'm working for the same cause that you are. Again, the sheriff nodded. His gun hand was relaxed, still gripping his weapon, but allowing it to rest upon the blanket of his bed. How did you happen to go to the clearing today? Was it your own idea, or did someone send you? I was sent by a note a deputy brought in after finding Joe Frisbee dead. The Lone Ranger's suspicion about Wickham Ranch were well-founded. Was the note signed? he asked. Nope. Do you have any idea who wrote it? No idea except this. Now I'm darn sure it was written by one of the Night Legion and figured you'd return to the clearing and wanted me on hand to shoot it out with you. Whichever one of us was killed, it'd be one less against the Night Legion. The Lone Ranger was about to ask another question when a yell sounded from somewhere down the road outside. He thought it was the oldest of the deputies, and he was right. Walrus, on his way home from the cafe with several friends, sighted the two white horses near the sheriff's house. "'There's the horses of the two of them!' he yelled at the top of his voice. He'd taken just enough strong liquor to confuse and muddle his thoughts, and he still clung to the impression that the horses were owned by men who were wanted by the law. "'I couldn't mistake them horses!' Walrus went on. "'Come on, boys! Surround the sheriff's house!' There's where dem creators are at. Every word the old man uttered came clearly to the three inside. You better get away, Cook snapped. The rest of the boys around here don't understand your work like I do. They're coming on the run. There can be no doubt of this. Other voices added to the clamor started by old walrus, and they were coming closer every second. But I have to know, shouted the masked man. Who wears a blue vest with no time? The sheriff barked. He snatched at the drawer of a small table and it came all the way out to drop on the floor with a crash. I'll give you the note. He was on the floor brushing aside odds and ends that spilled from the drawer. When he stood in his bare feet, he thrust a piece of paper toward the Lone Ranger. Here's the note. The men were close to the house now, shouting words of encouragement to the sheriff, thinking perhaps he was at that moment in danger of his life. But quite the reverse was the case. The sheriff not only was in no personal danger, he was interested only in the safety of the one man in all the world he felt was capable of combating the boss of the Night Legion. Take the note. Study it when you get the chance. But in heaven's name, get away from here while you still have a chance. The Lone Ranger jammed his gun into the holster and took the paper. He knew there was no chance to inquire about the man who wore a blue vest which had one button missing. He muttered a word of thanks and streaked for the door. Tancho close behind. As the two covered the yards that separated them from their horses, guns barked on their right. They leapt to the saddles amid the shouting of men and sharp commands to stand still, while more guns spoke and bullets zoomed close. Io Silver! came the masked man's shout, and the two white horses were gone. Half a dozen men, headed by old walrus, fired blindly at the fugitives but having no horses in hand, were unable to give chase. Instead, they burst into Sheriff Cook's house, all talking at once. Cook's voice rose above the others in order to quiet them down. 
What in the devil is the matter with you boys, raising such a rumpus in the middle of the night? Walrus tried to speak, but in his excitement, with his tongue thickened by fiery liquor, he jabbered incoherently. Calm down, the sheriff said at length. There's no call to get so excited. Now you boys clear out of here. Let me get some sleep. But, but, what, 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 stammered Walrus. What, what was, what were you doing here? What, what was with them two men? All I was doing, broke in the sheriff was adding a couple of deputies to get the night legion. Now vamoose! The man asked a couple more questions, which the sheriff evaded, and then drifted out of the house, somewhat disappointed at the letdown. When they had gone, Cook once more settled down in bed, and grinning broadly in the dark, thought, I'd swap a hundred men to have the Lone Ranger on my side. Chapter 15 Sounds in the Night The first night's sleep on Grant Wickham's ranch was a rather broken one for March and Sally. When they turned in following the late supper and the visit with their uncle, the sisters thought they'd drop to sleep at once, but they were too tired to do so. Their nerves were taut, and every muscle screamed complaint after the tortuous ride across the plain. Just as Marge was dozing, Sally nudged her, rousing her to listen to the sounds outside the house. There were men's voices, too far away to understand, but unquestionably something was going on. And for a quarter of an hour, both girls sat close to the window trying to hear. The men were on the opposite side of the house, so they couldn't be seen by the nieces of Grant Whitcomb. Then, with creaking of leather and jangling of spurs, the sounds faded. Ordinarily, Marge would have attached no importance to the incident, but following as it did, with the absolute lack of men other than her uncle on the spread, she wondered where they'd come from and where they were going. The more imaginative and impulsive Sally at once suspected a raid by the hooded men of the Night Legion. Marge laughed these fears down, but she herself felt slightly apprehensive. They climbed back into bed and drew the blankets to their chins, for the night air was getting steadily cooler, and they tried hard to sleep. The lack of sounds now seemed worse than the muttering of the men and the clump of hooves. Both girls lay quiet, but each knew the other was wide awake, tense and listening for something. They just didn't know what. Then another sound fell on their listening ears. It seemed to come from a great distance, and yet it was clearly audible and soft. Not the sort of sound that carries far. The first time they heard it, neither girl moved, but it was repeated, and Sally sat bolt upright in the darkness. Marge followed suit. It was an unmistakable sound, the groaning of a man in mortal anguish. There was silence for perhaps ten minutes, when the groaning began again. It was a man, somewhere not far distant. His voice was weak and the groan seemed to be one of pain and utter despair. Sally wanted to leave the room and tiptoe through the house and try to locate the sounds. Marge voted against it. Whatever it is, she told her sister, Uncle Grant will take care of it. It's probably nothing but one of the men in the bunkhouse with a tummy ache or a toothache. She didn't believe this herself, and she knew Sally didn't either. 
despite the fact that Sally agreed with her. The girls tried to tell themselves that everything was quite all right, but they felt more uneasy, apprehensive, and bewildered by the ranch with every new development. The groaning faded off in the distance, and it seemed like hours that Marge and Sally listened for it to start again, and then they finally fell asleep. Their first day on the ranch was half spent when they awakened. It was well past noon of the day the Lone Ranger and Tonto rode to the clearing in the woods where they met and escaped from Sheriff Cook's posse. Natacha wakened them, explaining that Grant Whitcomb had ridden away with his men on range affairs and would probably be gone all day. Great, then I'm going to do some exploring, exulted Sally. A sense of freedom crept into both girls with the news that their uncle was not around. They bathed and dressed and then did full justice to a belated breakfast of ham and eggs, crisp golden toast made from huge slabs of homemade bread, wild strawberry jam, and fragrant coffee with cream thick enough to be handled with a fork. Natasha served them and beamed at the way her cooking was appreciated. Despite her hag-like appearance, the old Indian woman proved quite likable. Sally bolted her food, anxious to get outdoors and take a look around the place. But she was doomed to disappointment. Grant Whitcomb, when he left, made certain the girls would be secure by posting three men as guards with strict orders to keep the girls indoors. Sally fumed and raged. She tried acting coy and flirtatious. She appealed to the men's chivalry. She argued for the best part of an hour, but Grant Wickham's men carried out his orders to the letter. The men were sorry, but orders were orders. What does he mean by keeping us prisoners? demanded the quick-tempered girl. He can't do this. How long are we supposed to stay cooped up in here? Dunno, ma'am, was the reply to this and all her other questions. The best Sally could achieve was a sort of explanation that it was for their good that the girls were kept indoors. It's because of the Night Legion, consoled Marge, and Sally finally gave up. Well, it's nice to know that Uncle Grant thinks so much of us, but I'd rather have a little more risk and a little more freedom. To pass the afternoon, the girls browsed through the many books in the well-stocked library. They chatted for a time with old Natacha, and then Sally had another thought. She headed for the room where the trapdoor was on the floor. Be fun to try and open it and see what's down below, she told her sister. But here again Sally was frustrated. The door of the room was tightly locked, and in response to Sally's request for the key, Natacha simply shook her head. The old crone seemed to want to tell the girls a few things. In fact, she started three times on some sort of explanation, but each time she stopped herself. Supper came and went with another splendidly prepared meal, but no sign of Grant Whitcomb. Then after supper, a strange thing happened, something that made the girls wonder and gave them food for conjecture and discussion for the entire evening. It started when Sally strolled into the huge kitchen where Natacha was washing dishes. Sally chatted idly for a time, but Natacha paid her scant attention. Then, with unusual care and a quick look at Sally, Natacha drew a mug from the big dishpan of sudsy water. She held it out for Sally to see and pointed to the girl. You drink em from it, she stated. 
Yeah, I did. What's the matter with it? Natasha shook her head. Nothing! She squished the water around in the pan, deep in thought. Marge entered the kitchen at that moment. Natasha saw her and drew a mate to the mug from the water, holding it up. She pointed a lean, bony finger at Marge. Her drink from this! Marge looked at Natasha, then at Sally, questioningly. Sally gestured silence while Natasha put the mug beside the first. She brought a third mug from the water, pointing to herself. Me drink, she said, and soused the mug in rinsing water, then placed it upside down in the drain. Her voice softened to a throaty, guttural tone. Uncle, not here, she almost growled. But take look. A fourth mug came from the water. Well, who drank from that? demanded Sally. The Indian shook her head slowly. Me not tell you. Was it one of the guards outside? asked Marge. No. Then who? Not tell you. Natasha would say no more. The girls pondered her actions for the balance of the evening. Obviously, the woman wanted the girls to realize that someone else was in the house. She had perhaps been put under oath not to reveal anything, but wanted the girls to know they were not alone here. When the girls retired, they were in anything but a peaceful state of mind. For lack of a better place, Mars still kept her part of the map in the toe of her boot. She was becoming increasingly glad Sally had lied about it as she had, and she was determined to keep it concealed from her uncle as long as possible, or at least until she had more trust in him than she felt at the present time. Marge wondered whether, when he returned, Grant Wickham would demand the map, and failing to see it start a thorough search, or if he'd let the matter drop with Sally's story that it was misplaced. The breeze rustled the window curtains, and the distant sound of prairie animals harmonized with the close sound of crickets to make a restful lullaby. Sally was muttering sleepily as if she were thinking out loud. I'll tell you one thing, she said. I'm going to get out of this house tomorrow by hook or crook. They're not going to keep me a prisoner here. She paused for several moments, and then Marge heard her drowsy voice again. Get a horse and, and a saddle, and I'm going to ride for a showdown and have, have a talk with the sheriff there. Again she paused, and then when she spoke, her voice was softer and drowsier than ever. Find out about... The uh, masked man. See what's known about Joe Frisbee. Gotta get to showdown. That's to talk about. Gonna get there somehow. And her voice trailed off as she slept. Neither of the girls wakened that night. They didn't know that once, a couple of hours after they'd retired, the door was softly opened, and old Natacha looked in, grinning toothlessly then closed the door as softly as she'd opened it. They didn't know that the crone crossed the narrow hall and pulled a key from beneath her faded, many-colored skirt and opened the door to the room with the iron ring in the floor. Neither did they hear Natacha leave the room a half an hour later, nor did they hear Grant Wickham enter the big house and go to his room at 3 a.m. The mysterious groans of the previous night were renewed intermittently, but neither of the sisters heard them. 
They slept soundly that night, while miles away across the plains, the Lone Ranger and Tonto huddled by their small fire and discussed the note the masked man had been given by Sheriff Cook. Marge wakened suddenly when the voice of Grant Wickham bellowed through the house in a tone that fairly shook the rafters. She sat up, blinked the sleep from her eyes, and saw it was daylight. But how long past sunrise, she had no idea. Something was wrong. Something right in that room that was not exactly as it should be. And she knew. Sally was gone. She recalled the younger girl's vows of the night before to get out of the house by hook or crook. Then the door burst open and Natacha told Marge what the Indian couldn't tell. Get her up, he roared. You hear me? Get Marge up and out of there and bring her here. Marge was out of bed, pulling on her clothes with frantic haste. Natacha tried to help her, jabbering all the while. Hurry up in there! It's after nine o'clock in the morning! The hoss has been gone for four hours! You, Margie, do you hear me? I'm coming, Uncle. Just a moment, she cried. Make it a half a minute! Things have happened! What has happened? Marge had to yell to make herself heard above Natacha's voice. It's your sister! came back the shout. She sneaked away from here! Taking a hoss with her. She's met with a bad accident. Marge Whitcomb's worst fears were realized. Sally had wakened at daybreak and, true to her word, slipped from the house to the saddle shed and then to the corral. And when she rode away, one of two things must have happened. Either the wild western horse she selected had thrown her for a nasty spill with almost any injury possible, or she'd fallen into the hands of the night legion. She felt an emptiness in the pit of her stomach. It was minutes before the girl regained enough composure to call out, What happened to Sally? Don't know for sure yet. One of the men found her. Get out here. Come with us. We'll take you to her. Marge was finally dressed. She hurriedly knotted her hair and pulled on her shoes, feeling as she did so the tight, folded bit of paper that was still nestled in the toe of one boot. Then she grabbed a jacket from a peg near the door and hurried to her uncle's side. I'm, I'm, I'm ready, Uncle Grant, she stammered. About time, was the sharp reply. Come on. Seizing the girl's hand, the big man fairly dragged her through the front door of the house. There were men in evidence near the corral, tossing saddles onto the dodging horses. One of them came toward Grant Wickham on the run. Marge thought she'd never seen an uglier, more repulsive face on any man than the one who came to meet them. One side of his greasy, evil-looking face was drawn up by a badly healed scar, and his broken nose seemed to spread halfway across his cheek. Boss! Boss! he screamed at Grant Wickham. Seven has robbed me! What are you talking about, Scar? bellowed Wickham. It's my vest! The blue one with the glass buttons. I can't bother about that now. We got more important things to tend to. I left it in the sales shed and it's been stolen. Find it later, snapped Wickham, and then to Marge. Come on, we'll get on them horses and start out right away. The whole thing was a grim nightmare to Marge. She moved as if in a dream, not knowing where she was about to be led or 
what she'd find at the end of the trail. She firmly believed that Sally had met with some sort of tragic circumstance, and she could imagine the small girl, so full of joy of living, now crushed and broken and calling for her sister. Marge choked back a sob, determined to keep her chin up and her head level, as she knew Sally would do in the same situation. When she and Grant Wickham rode away from the vicinity of the house, several other men rode with them. But Marge didn't even know the direction in which they were riding. Her mind was just filled with thoughts of Sally. <laughs>